sorry. Gotta move this. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's start by considering two scenarios. The first scenario is that you've just completed a long day of work, but before you can head home, you need to pick up a couple of items from Home Depot. Unfortunately, it seems as though everyone has the same idea because Home Depot is packed. And so you start looking for your light bulbs and duct tape. Of course, you're not able to find either. So you start looking for a Home Depot associate. But all you see are other clueless customers walking around aimlessly. So after a few minutes of walking up and down the aisles, you finally track someone wearing the orange apron. He's helping another customer, and so you wait next to them patiently. And after a few minutes, he finishes up, and then you step up to ask your question. But before you're able to do so, a woman comes out of nowhere, grabs your Home Depot associate, and proceeds to ask him how to install a toilet fill valve. What do you do? Here's a second scenario. You're chatting with a coworker over chicken katsu plate lunches, and after talking about how bad the morning traffic was, your coworker begins to complain about Jack, a fellow coworker. Now, at first, you listen and nod, but a few minutes later, your coworker is continuing to criticize Jack about how rude he is, how lazy he is, how he doesn't bathe regularly. Now. You know that Jack is far from perfect, but he's definitely not that bad. And you start to feel uncomfortable. What do you do? Today, we're going to be looking at how to stand up for what is right. The reality is that at some point, someone in our lives, whether a close coworker or a stranger at Home Depot, will make an unwise decision. And at that point, what will you do? Now, before we dive into this subject, uh, I want to first acknowledge that this is a very difficult topic. And as full disclosure, I am by no means an expert in this area, and so this message is for me to learn from as well. Um, I wrestle with it constantly, and I am definitely a work in progress. So, now, for most of us, we'll fall within one of two extremes. Some of us are overly confrontational. We just tell it like it is. It's almost as though we're waiting for someone to mess up so that we can pounce on them, and then we can go Donald Trump on them. And this may be how some of us would react in the first scenario, where it is easy for us to want to angrily tell the woman who cut in front of us how rude she is, how she needs to get some manners, and she needs to wait her turn like a civilized person. Others of us are non-confrontational, and especially given our local culture, many of us tend to be more passive and unwilling to confront. It's really none of my business, and who am I to judge? And this may be how some of us would react in the second scenario, where we are more likely to give our coworker a pass and not say anything at all. After all, we know our coworker is generally a good person, and after all, complaining is not a big deal, right? So, 
you know, for some of us, we wouldn't even do that because we, it would be awkward to confront our coworker. Indeed, some of us cringe at the word confront because it seems so aggressive and unloving. And yet, others of us are passive aggressive, and so we exhibit the different extremes at different times. Often, our response is situational, and so it depends on. The actual scenario, as seen with the two different scenarios that we talked about, we need to seek God's wisdom as to when, why, and how we confront people. If we are following Christ, there will be times when God will call upon us to intervene in someone's life because that is the loving thing to do. In fact, remaining silent would be unloving. And an easy way to see this is with a parent dealing with his or her young child. If the child starts to play in the road, then the loving thing to do is for us to step in and to confront the child. And now I know some of you, some of you might be thinking, "Well, but that's fine when you're dealing with the child, but we shouldn't deal with an adult like this." But I think we all know from personal experience that we, as adults, Are prone to making mistakes and bad decisions, and in those cases, even if it is temporarily uncomfortable, we do want someone to hold us accountable and to point us in the right direction. This could be a close friend who is struggling with an alcohol or drug addiction, or this could be a family member who's making unwise financial decisions, or it could be an older child who's fallen in with the wrong crowd at school. We will all need to stand up at certain times for the right thing, and in fact, a true friend will often stand up rather than remain silent. So, Proverbs is a compilation of wise sayings, and it has much to say on this topic. Proverbs 27:5 through 6 says, "Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses." Proverbs 28:23 says, "Whoever rebukes a person will, in the end, gain favor, rather than one who has a flattering tongue." And the New Living Translation says it more directly: "In the end, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery." And Proverbs 29:5 says, "To flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet." So what is clear from Proverbs is that a true friend will be honest, and will stand up to a loved one if he or she needs to hear the truth, rather than remaining silent or simply agreeing with their friend. In fact, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American philosopher and poet in the 1800s, opined as to what makes for a strong friendship. I hate where I looked for manly furtherance, or at least a manly resistance. To find a mush of concession, better be a nettle in the side of your friend than his echo. So, if we truly love our friends, we will sometimes need to stand up to them. And in the same way, if we, as Christ followers, are to truly love those around us, we will sometimes need to stand up to them as well. And at this point, I think the overly confrontational people are liking what I'm saying. While the non-confrontational people are starting to feel very uncomfortable, but we need to stand up in the right way. We cannot be overly confrontational, 
and we cannot be non-confrontational. And Daniel shows us a better way. To set the stage, as we learned last week, Daniel was taken into captivity, and King Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to brainwash Daniel and the other young promising Jews into Babylonian culture so that he could control the Jewish people that he had conquered. Now, as background information, King Nebuchadnezzar was considered to be the greatest king in the Babylonian Empire, and he ruled from 605 BC to 562 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar is credited with constructing the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So let's now turn to chapter four of Daniel, which starts with King Nebuchadnezzar sharing about himself. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Some people speculate that the interpreters actually could interpret the dream, but would not interpret the dream, because they were afraid that the king would kill the messenger of the bad news. And so the king turned to Daniel, who by now was about 45 years old, which means that he had known the king for about 30 years. And so the king and Daniel have a long-standing relationship with one another. And so the king tells Daniel about his dream. He dreamt about a giant tree that reached upwards towards the heavens. Its expansive branches and leaves provided shelter for the animals, and its fruit provided food for the people. And suddenly, a holy messenger from the heavens shouted out, "Cut down the tree and leave only a stump, so that everyone will know that God is the Most High and rules over all nations." Now it would have been easy for Daniel to have feigned ignorance or simply made up a harmless interpretation. Instead, we see how Daniel lovingly stands up to the king and tries to point him in the right direction. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, "Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you." Belteshazzar answered, "My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies, and its meaning to your adversaries." And here, we see Daniel expressing genuine concern for the king. It's as the well-known saying goes: "People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care." And then Daniel tells the king the truth: "Your Majesty, you are that tree." You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone He wishes, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots 
means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now Daniel could have stopped there. After all, he had already truthfully interpreted the dream for the king. But Daniel took another important step. He had the courage to do something that literally could have cost him his life. He stood up to the king. Not because he was proud of himself or because he wanted to correct the king, but because he loved the king and he wanted the king to know the goodness of God. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. In other words, king, I care for you. I want what is best for you. Please stop sinning and do what is right. I want you to be blessed. Although I don't know the exact circumstances, there will be times when God will call upon you to step up and to reach out to someone who is making wrong decisions and to encourage them back to God's path and to God's best for their life. This could be a friend, a spouse, a child, a coworker. It may even be someone that you don't know very well. And of course, there will be times when we need someone who will stand up to us and help point us back in the right direction. Similar to Daniel's approach, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So we need to gently and humbly help that person out. And this is related to what we talk a lot about here at KCF, truth and grace. And similarly, there is the soft side of love and the tough side of love. And oftentimes people simply focus on the soft side of love because that seems easier. But there should be this constant tension. And there is no magic formula, but rather it is seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit in how to balance truth and grace and the soft side of love and the tough side of love. And this is the reason that we often end up being married to someone who is very different, as Pastor Mac shared about last month. They will complement us and they will balance us out. And so as you probably know, one side generally comes more naturally to us. And so, as you can probably tell, in my case, my wife Susan is much better at the grace side, while I'm probably better at the truth side. And Susan is definitely much better at the soft side of love than I am, and I'm probably better on the tough side of love. And that's the beauty of marriage, that we're able to be better together than we are alone. And regardless of whether we're married or not, we always have the Holy Spirit. And if we are attuned to the Holy Spirit, it will guide us and balance us out so that we're able to hit the necessary and delicate balance between the two. And Jesus did this in the well-known story of the woman caught in adultery. Taking a look at John 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. 
They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Did Jesus show the soft side of love and grace? Yes. Did Jesus show the tough side of love and truth? Yes. Jesus was able to effectively blend both together so that he was able to lovingly, gently, and humbly stand up to the woman. And this was the truly loving thing for Jesus to do. To help us stand up and confront in the right way, we're going to be looking at two prayers that we can use. The first prayer is, God, help me to confront with the goal of restoration. So we need to stand up for the right reason. We want to help someone that we love get back on the right path. We're not confronting because we want to win an argument or we want to prove that we're better than the other person. And this is sometimes a little difficult for me. I grew up with banter as a sport, and I did debate in high school and absolutely loved it. In fact, we affectionately called it the ultimate non-contact sport. So we even had that tagline emblazoned on our team hoodie. And one of my fellow debaters dared to wear it out in public, and he was promptly picked on by the wrestlers. I'm not sure why. I haven't figured that out. Anyway, um, as a lawyer, this love of verbal jousting has been reaffirmed, and so I need to be especially vigilant in resisting the temptation to want to simply focus on winning debate points. You know, that's confronting for a self-focused, selfish purpose. But we are called to confront for an others-focused, selfless purpose. And we want to help the other person, and we want to help that person's relationship with God. My wife likes to remind me about the time that we went on an Alaskan cruise. And no, it's not about the time that we saw Mendenhall Glacier or we spotted a brown bear at Ketchikan. It's about the time that we were sitting in a tour bus in Denali National Park. So we were sitting in the middle of the bus, and packets of hot cocoa were being passed around, row by row. Now, for whatever reason, when it got to our row, the elderly gentleman across the aisle decided to pass the hot cocoa behind him instead of across the aisle to Susan and me, which was the established pattern. <laughs> and at that point, the high school debater in me rose up. And at that point, is also when versions of the story diverge. So, <laughs> according to Susan, she claims that I brashly stood up and shouted, where's my hot cocoa? Pass it here, Gramps. 
And what really happened, <laughs> at least in my version of the story, is that I politely said, "Excuse me, kind sir, could you please pass the hot cocoa here when you're finished? Thank you." Now, to this day, I still believe that what I said in my version of the story was perfectly fine, and I do acknowledge that the hypothetical person in Susan's fictionalized story does have some anger management issues. Um, but since then, whenever I want to stand up for something, which admittedly is often, um, Susan will tease me by saying, "Where's my hot cocoa?" <laughs> and it serves as a reminder to me to stop and to think about whether I'm standing up for the right reason. You know, oftentimes we don't say anything because we don't. We're more concerned about our relationship with that person rather than. That person's relationship with God, and so we either say nothing or we say something way too subtle, so that the other person still likes us. We don't want to make waves or cause any trouble. You know, and as a parent, we want our kids to eat healthy foods. The loving thing for us to do is to make them eat their kale and cucumbers. But too often, many of us do the equivalent in our relationships. Of allowing our kids to swap out their greens for cheddar jalapeno Cheetos and Fat Boy ice cream sandwiches. What you are? You have a problem with anger? Really? I can't even tell. Or oh, you're struggling in your marriage? Don't even worry about it. It'll take care of itself on its own. It's not a big deal. But standing up and confronting may sometimes be the truly loving thing for us to do. And this demonstrates the importance of what we say. As a Christ follower, we are called to be different, and that includes being different in what we say. Romans 12:2 says, "Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will." And this is a sobering question. Is how we stand up to people different from how non-believers stand up? A number of years ago, I had left my law firm to go in-house at my current company, and shortly after I had transitioned over, I was chatting with a partner at my old law firm. Somehow, we started talking about my faith, and he was surprised to learn that I was a Christ follower. And then he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, "Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea you were a Christian." And the second he said that, I felt convicted. I had been at my law firm for two and a half years, and I had worked closely with this individual. Yet he had no clue as to the most important thing in my life. And that has served as a reminder to me that I need to live differently, rather than blending into this world. Daniel. Was a foreigner. For Christ followers today who are living in a post-Christian world, we will often feel like foreigners in our own society. When we read the newspaper or watch TV, we are constantly reminded that this world is moving away from God's path, away from the Bible. But even as a foreigner in our own society, just as God did with Daniel. God will give us opportunities to speak truth into others' lives. 
And just as Daniel was able to stand up to King Nebuchadnezzar, God will also give us opportunities to speak up to those who are in authority, whether our bosses at work or our governmental and community leaders. As a foreigner, what we will stand up for will often seem foreign to non-believers, loving unconditionally. Sex is reserved for marriage between a husband and wife, forgiving those who have hurt us. As Christ followers, we are countercultural. We are, as the saying goes, in but not of this world. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. And this prayer applies to us as well. Note that King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who asked Daniel for information. And I think a big part of this is because Daniel stood out as being different, as we learned last week. The king had tried asking his own interpreters, but they had failed him. And so he immediately thought of Daniel, who stood out as being different and special. And in the same way, if we are living out our faith in our lives and truly being salt and light, we will look different from the rest of the world. And inevitably, when people hit tough times, they will turn to you for your thoughts and for your advice because they realize that the world's way of doing things, the old way of doing things, is not working. And this is a big part in how we're able to make this world a different place, to improve it. And Daniel's example is challenging from another perspective. If you recall, King Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Daniel's people and had kidnapped Daniel from his family. And he was trying to replace Jewish culture with Babylonian culture. So it would have been understandable if Daniel didn't want to help the king out, didn't want to tell him the truth. Instead, we see how Daniel demonstrates love toward his enemy. And in the same way, there will be times when God will call upon us to lovingly stand up to someone that we may not like or who may be harming us. Now, I know that's a bit heavy, so let's conclude this discussion of the first prayer with an encouragement. The good thing is that we don't need to worry about what we're going to say. Luke 12:11 through 12 says, When they take you to the places of worship and to the courts and to the leaders of the country, do not be worried about what you should say or how to say it. The Holy Spirit will tell you what you should say at that time. So we have the assurance that the Holy Spirit, if we are attuned to it, will guide us in what to say. So that means we don't need to worry about scripting out everything we're going to say 
or anticipating how to respond to every single possible thing the other person might say. The presence of the Holy Spirit provides us with freedom and peace. So let's move on to the second prayer. The second prayer is, God, help me confront with caution. So not only what we say is different, but also how we say it is different. And in Daniel's case, he confronted the king with great caution and without any hint of pride. Turning again to Galatians 6.1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So when we confront, we become vulnerable to pride. It's so easy to think that we're so spiritual and that the other person should be grateful that God has blessed them with our words of wisdom. A couple of months ago, I was talking to a friend who had an opportunity to share some thoughts with a group of up-and-coming business and community leaders. And he felt a nudge that he should share his faith and his testimony. And immediately, I told him that he should definitely do it. And I half-jokingly told him that he should just do the right thing and fear God and not man. And afterwards, I was feeling pretty good about myself and how I had dispensed some really solid, godly advice. And I remember driving home afterwards and asking, although it was probably me more like telling God, God, that was pretty good, huh? You must be really proud of me. And I felt God ask, ask me, would you do what you told your friend to do? And my immediate response, probably similar to how Peter responded to Jesus when Jesus asked Peter whether he loved him, was, of course, God, and I'm kind of offended you're asking me that. And then I felt God gently remind me of a similar situation that I had had. A few years ago, when I was starting my MBA program, I had the opportunity to introduce myself to my cohort. And at that time, I did not share my faith or my testimony. And I felt God lovingly tell me, yes, your general inclination may have been right, but you need to convey it in a gentle and a humble manner. And you need to be careful not to become smug or prideful. And this brings to mind a well-known passage from Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So we need to be careful that we are not that person with a log in our eye, especially if we think that we see someone with a speck in their eye. Similarly, Proverbs 16:18 warns, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is the source of the saying that pride goes before the fall. When we lovingly, gently, and humbly bring correction to someone, we are not placing ourselves above that person. When we correct, we should be well aware that we are all too human 
and that we are prone to the exact same mistakes and errors as that person. When we see someone who's making bad decisions, we need to have an attitude of, there but for the grace of God go I. Because the more we know God, the more we realize how messed up we are and how desperately we need him. And this second prayer is tied to the first prayer because it is in the context of relationship that we try to help bring restoration to the other person. When we confront in the right way and for the right reason, we will see the right results. Going back to Daniel's story, the dream as interpreted by Daniel was ultimately fulfilled. However, it did take the king seven years for him to come to his senses and to acknowledge God. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble and this shows us that when we confront someone they will not always immediately agree with it and thank us for our insightful advice oftentimes they will simply ignore it or they may outright reject it but we trust that the Holy Spirit will be working in that person's heart. And sometimes it may take a while. In Daniel's case, it took the king seven years. But we know that God works all things out for good. Isaiah 55:11 talks about God's word. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. So ultimately, we need to remember that we are not responsible for the other person's response. We are simply to be obedient to what God has called us to do. We do our part, and we allow God to do the rest. In Daniel's case, King Nebuchadnezzar eventually turned back to God because of the courage that Daniel had to stand up gently and humbly. Do we have a King Nebuchadnezzar in our lives? Is there a conversation that we need to have that we've been putting off or that we've been approaching in the wrong way? Do we need to talk to our spouse about our marriage and how we can improve it? Or do we need to talk to a child about their negative behaviors or attitudes? Or maybe we need to talk to a close co-worker or friend about unwise decisions that are being made. We are a conduit through which God is able to demonstrate his unconditional love. 
And we are a guidepost pointing someone back onto the right path. And may we also be open to others when they try to help us to get right with God. We all need people in our lives that love us enough that they will hold us accountable when we make our inevitable mistakes. So may we remember the two prayers when we are provided with an opportunity to stand up, whether to a close coworker or someone who cuts, cuts in front of us at Home Depot. May we learn to stand up like Daniel. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, for so many of us, standing up is difficult. But we know that sometimes confrontation is actually the most loving thing that we can do. It's so easy for us to fall into one of two extremes, but help us to stand up in the right way, in a gentle and humble manner. May we confront with the goal of, rest, of restoring the other person, and may we confront with caution. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may truly be salt and light in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, and our communities. Help us to stand up so that we can become the friend to others and the follower of you that we're called to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.